All right. Uh, Google tells me that we're on air now. So uh, what's up, Roman? Thanks for meeting with me. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you. I think your book is actually, I mean, it's such a small niche topic, I'm sure. Uh, but I think that it's, I actually do think that it's it's really important for reasons that I hope we'll discuss. Um, but yeah, so I, uh, the short of it is I'm, I'm actually really excited to talk to you about this stuff because I've been interested in kind of the intersection between Christianity and radical politics for a long time. But uh, as you might not be surprised to hear, there's not too many people to talk about this with. Um, so yeah, I, I've been thinking about this stuff for a while and so I'm really eager to have your attention for, for some time now. Uh, so I'm thinking one of the best ways to just kick things off would be to ask you a, a substantive question, uh, just to, just to ignite the conversation and then, you know, we'll, we can go in any direction you want. But, um, basically as you know, in your book, uh, there are pretty explicit, uh, commentaries in the Bible, uh, or passages in the Bible that seem to suggest um, the early Christians lived quite literally um, in communist organized groups um, that, that they actually structured their relationships and their lives under pretty explicitly and radically communist lines. So in, in particular, in the Acts of the Apostles, um, you know, it says, and I'm quoting from your work, it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And that's the title of your book, All Things in Common. Um they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Um, so there seems to be in the Bible some statements that the early Christians lived as communists. Could you could you tell I, I, could you tell us a little bit more detail? Um, is this true? And and exactly how did they did they organize their relationships in this way? Just in a nutshell. In a nutshell. Um, so yeah, yeah, it is true. Uh, and the 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 two passages there. Uh, are known traditionally as the communism of the apostles passages. So it's Acts 2, 42 to 47, 4, 32 to 37. And those are the explicit ones where they say they held all things in common. Uh, they sold what they had and they distributed it. And uh, in chapter four, it says that they didn't consider anything uh, that they had as their own uh, or as their own property. It depends on the translation. Um, and, and so these are the passages that stick out the most. But uh, there are other passages within the New Testament uh, and then within um, outside the New Testament, uh, such as in the Didache, uh, the Epistle of Barnabas, and then later on uh, in uh, church fathers such as Tertullian and Justin Martyr and others that describe the same thing um, using different terms. And then there's things in the Pauline letters, for example, that don't directly address uh, the communism, but give hints that it's something that's really happening. Uh, so, for example, excuse me, in one of the uh, uh, letters he, uh, in, I think it's Second Thessalonians uh, 3, he talks about people who are basically trying to take advantage of the system, uh, trying to travel around to different uh, communities and uh, benefit from the system, uh, from the communism, without contributing anything. And the same thing is in First uh, uh, Peter, talking about how some of the families would just sort of drop off their widows. And that, uh, you know, he's saying that, well, you should take care of your own widows before you drop them off. So just tons of evidence out there uh-huh. um, that, that these things were, were happening. And even outside uh, Christian literature, you have 
probably my one of my favorite um, sort of uh, um, hints at the communism. It's not even a hint. The direct evidence is a Lucian uh, in the second century who was a, a Roman poet. And he wrote this uh, kind of story uh, making fun of the Christians, having this figure called Proteus, who would go around and he would scam the Christians, take advantage of them. And he was trying to paint this picture of the Christians as being kind of stupid, kind of naive. And he describes their doctrine, trying to like give a summary of who the Christians are and what they believe. And he basically describes what their core identity is, is that they hold all things in common. And that they, uh, they in, in his words, he says they despise everything equally, that they despise property. So, and, and that's his way of sort of making fun of them. And so you have all this evidence out there that there was something going on substantive. And the way uh, in my, my book I reconstruct it, I kind of use two different approaches. So one is I use uh, the categories from economic anthropology. And uh, specifically, I, use, I rely heavily on David Graeber, his book, uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and some other, some other works as well. And uh, uh, in, that, in that book, um, it, it describes different forms of social organization or social relationship, uh, hierarchy, exchange, and communism. And in, in, that, uh, in those categories, communism is basically any situation or any relationship where the principle of from each according to his ability to each according to his, oh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need is the operating principle. Uh, so I use that as a category. And the reason I went with economic anthropology is because uh, a lot of, or many other sort of commentaries and um, histories would look at those passages, look at what's going on, and they try and use more political, like mm -hmm. they try and think of sort of modern post-enlightenment political categories of how to run a country, right? Right. Uh, and in their, in their viewpoint, they think like capitalism against communism or socialism or whatever. And they're thinking, well, uh, which category do the Christians fall into? Or they use economic uh, ways of thinking. Like they'll think, okay, maybe are they setting up cooperatives or something like a, a, uh, a sort of monastic community? Right. And so they'll think in those terms. But uh, I don't think that works uh, using those categories. And I think that using – because – there's a couple of reasons that early Christians weren't a state or anything like a state. Uh, they didn't have any authority to, to make laws. They didn't have an and army. That's, and that's really important, actually, right? Be especially for thinking about why this matters today or how this imports into uh, timely political conversations right now. Because, you know, whenever you talk about communism today, whenever radical folks talk about something like communism, the immediate rejection that people always come up with and and it's fair enough it really is it's that you know that could never work you could never you know change the capitalist system because and you know so the rejection in other words is assumed it's assuming that the communist project is about changing a political system or an economic system from the top down like that's what everyone assumes you mean whenever you talk about something like communism so right. what you're saying, what you're saying is really important because what you're saying basically, or at least the way that I'm reading you is that, um, you know, the early Christians actually were pretty content to leave Roman law alone. 
Like they were kind of indifferent to it. And really what they were trying to do was create communities with on a totally different um, kind of spiritual, emotional and ethical basis. Uh, and so that that's actually what communism refers to in, in its most serious and mature and workable form. It, it actually has to do with what you know, what you call economic relationships, not economic system. Now, there was a material uh, component to it. They did have systems in place, but they were kind of uh, organically generated and based on 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 a restructuring of relationships. So I just wanted to flag for the for listeners that, you know, what you're talking about is not arcane economic history distinctions, but it's actually super relevant for uh, current debates because the, the most common way to reject communism is to say that, um, you know, it's a, it's a failed system. It can't work as a system, but no, the Christians show that there's something much deeper uh, that communism can mean that actually works. Right, and, and the, the interesting thing about that is, is uh, the word communism has become such a, a sort of toxic word. And to be honest, it, it, a lot of it can also come from those who are proponents of communism. So you'll hear a lot of, especially uh, like Marxists, and uh, and I have nothing against Marxists. I think they, they do a lot of good work. But uh, a lot of them, they, they will define communism in in the sense to where it's, it's almost become a, a paradise-like system that is so out there that it is almost immune to any analysis so they'll say it is a state a universal so worldwide international withering of the state no private property everything is held in common so it's so sort of distant and far off so that you have to go through you know advanced capitalism you have to go through socialism and the state has to wither away that it's it's you can't even talk about it it's so far away and, and then there's also the the sort of common um uh, use of the term, which is basically Marxist, Leninist, socialist, statist states in the 20th century, which is, I mean, uh, historically, uh, it, it really has nothing to do with the word communism, even as Marxist, Leninists use it, they would never call those states uh, communists. So those two uses of the term have really kind of muddied the water. So I wanted to bring back the uh, communism in terms of social relationships, because then it's something that you can actually talk about. Right. And so Roman, could I, could I interrupt you there? So I think uh, for a lot of people, this will be sort of very abstract. Can I ask you, you know, your your book gives a wealth of information about how early Christians lived in uh, basically the first and second uh, centuries, if I, if I understand you correctly. Could you just informally for us kind of paint us a picture of, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an average, um, you know, recent joiner of the the christ movement and i'm in first century palestine you know how how do i live just paint uh, an informal portrait of what my relationships are like and my everyday kind of economic reality right so the 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 first thing to understand is that joining these movements they were they were based on um the Jewish movement that came before it. So they were based around uh, Ecclesia, the, what they today would call the church, but it's, it's not, you don't think of it in terms of a building. It's a, uh, the word Ecclesia actually just means like an assembly. So it's a congregation. So you join this group, this community, and basically you'd be through the, the, the teachings of this community, through 
Uh, and you can, and these are teachings that we have access to. We have them in the Gospels. We have them in the New Testament. We have them in the, uh, you know, the the Apostolic Fathers, and uh, they'd get. Oh, hang on! You broke off for a second. Towards their fellow Christians, and a material obligation. So basically, if their fellow Christian was in need there'd be a very, very strong push for if you have the ability to take care of that person or to fulfill that need, you kind of have to do it. And there, the other thing that they would do, and this is described in, in detail by um, uh, Justin Martyr, uh, and um, where when they would gather together, when they would meet, they would take a collection and everyone would give um, to this collection, to the, uh, to the presbyters, to the elders, and uh, they would uh, gather all this stuff and then they would distribute it to the widows, to the poor, um, to the orphans, to those in prison. And uh, we know that this was, was not like a kind of um, philanthropy thing of, you know, if you want to, you can give something. And, uh, you know, over time, they gather it up and give it to it. This was something to where there was a daily distribution. Uh, to the widows. So they would distribute food on a daily basis to the widows. So it was a very, very, very strong uh, pressure to do that. And, and the way you could see that is, uh, is they, they talk about sharing all things in common, uh, some of the early fathers, and they compare it with things like uh, abstaining from fornication, from uh, idolatry, things like that. So uh, it would be in order to not do that, to not take part in these relationships, to not take part in these uh, redistributions would be very serious. It would be almost like you're not being a Christian. It's like, uh, it would be like them, you know, going back to serving one of the gods or whatever. So uh, one way that I, I modeled it was on the Essenes. And uh, the, the Essenes were a, a Jewish sect within the same time period who were very similar to the Christians. Uh, they existed before the Christians, and uh, they were very well known. Um, Josephus talks about the four sects being the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, uh, the Essenes, and then something called the fourth sect, which uh, are also known as the Zealots. But the, the Essenes were... Um, are very interesting because we have two sources for the Essenes. We have uh, people like Philo and Josephus who were Jews writing for Gentiles, uh, for non-Jews. And that's the same uh, sort of format that we have in Luke Acts, which is a, a Christian writing for um the outside world. Uh, that's, that's the most of the Gospels, it's, uh, or most of the New Testament, uh, except for the, the letters, of course. But um, uh, so we see how, how they use that language, how they talk about how the Essenes, and they use the exact same language. They hold all things in common. Mm -hmm. And then we can look at the Essenes, their own writings, and we have access to those through the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's, uh, it's not exactly correct to say that the Dead Sea Scrolls community were the Essenes per se, because the Essenes, it's kind of like the word um, 
you know, conservative or liberal. It can be a group or it can be a tendency. So I think one, uh, one scholar who focused on the Desu skulls call them, calls them Essenish. So, that's, so these are a group that uh, would be under the umbrella of Essenes. So we have their writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we okay. have documents like the Damascus document, the community rule document that describe how they organize themselves. And these are documents that they wrote for themselves. So we can compare the two and see how they were described to the outside world and how they describe themselves. And then we can sort of make a model okay. uh, of, and then compare that to the Christians. And with the uh, Essenes, it was basically the same thing. They had a, uh, a sort of formal collection distribution. They had a, a tax system that they would have to collect in money and then distribute. But they also had a very strong emphasis on sharing and um, informal communism. And I have to just uh, talk about a distinction. In mm. my book, I, I use a distinction between formal and informal communism. And the distinction is basically this. Uh, formal communism is uh, where the, the moral principle of from each according to his ability to each according to his need is uh, enforced through a, a rule or some sort of regulation. So like a monastery would have rules to make sure that that uh, relationship continues. Uh, informal communism would be more kind of like, you know, if a disaster strikes, people spontaneously revert to communism. They, they just go out there and they find out who needs what. And uh, or, or like, for example, when a, a bunch of friends are going on a trip together, very often they'll organize themselves communistically, just spontaneously. So those are the two um, uh, ways that I use that term. And for the Essenes, they had both. And they were both very strong to the point to where uh, Josephus could describe them as having all things in common, uh, not having, you know, holding anything for themselves. Um, even though we know that they, they had in their own internal documents uh, issues about, like, for example, let's say someone lost something that was their own. So we know that they hadn't sort of gotten rid of private property as, as a concept. They just had pushed it to the point to where it was almost, uh, it was much less relevant than in the outside world. Right. So, so let's say I'm an early Christian and I mean, I'm sure there must have been cases where people were said they didn't want to share. Right. They didn't want to give. They didn't want to um, hold all things in common. Uh, are there cases that you know of or are there, are there you know, well-known cases where that was dealt with? And, and how, how was that dealt with? Right after um, uh, the second time the all things in common is described, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And um in that case, it, that's a little bit of a complicated story because it's kind of like a, it's, it's written in a way uh, to remind you of a story in the, uh, the Hebrew Bible uh, in uh, Joshua about someone who had hidden something that was meant uh, to be for, for God. But the, the story basically is, is that these two, uh, this couple, were going to join the Christian congregation. And they had said that they had sold their property and was going to distribute it, uh, give it to the apostles for distribution. Um, they gave part of it. They didn't give the rest of it. They got caught. And in the story, God smites them dead. Now, a lot of people will point to that story to say, well, okay, look, it shows that they had private property because, you know, uh, the uh, the apostles Peter says to them like well it was your property 
you know, before you sold it. So, you know, you didn't have to do it, but you're lying to us and the Holy Spirit and so on. And, and the, the thing is, is it, so they, they were expected uh, to, to do that and they didn't have to do it mm-hmm. in, in the sense that if they didn't do it, no one was going to, you know, arrest them. But the idea was if they were, if you're going to be a Christian, this is something you have to do. So it, it would be kind of like this, like, let's say, uh, you know, um, you have, you, you become a Christian, but you want to com- continue to, uh, you know, uh, give sacrifices to, you know, your, the local God where you are, because it's been helping your farming. Now, no, no one's going to force you not to do that. You know, you can do that if you want, but you're not being a Christian. It's just, it's just right. not happening. And so it's, is it fair to say that probably um, to the degree that you lived by communism, you were a valued member of the Christian community and you, you're probably your, your status increased your, the respect you earned increased these sorts of things whereas if you if you didn't willingly uh you know hold all of your things in common and if you weren't extremely generous in these sorts of things um then you were probably just uh you know ostracized a bit or at least uh your, your rank in the community uh probably plummeted right so that's a kind of organic way that these sorts of norms could be uh enforced over time is that what right. happened so, so you see this actually, you see this in the New Testament, for example, with the book of James, and then you see it later on, uh, you know, more in late antiquity. So there's, a, um, there, there's another book uh, by a scholar called Peter Brown who focuses on late antiquity. And there we have a lot more documentation. And there there's uh, discussions of, of they'd go into, the, into these meetings where they'd be gathering together and they'd see rich people come in. And everyone would be watching them. And this, uh, I can't remember exactly, uh, but I think these were, these were describing uh, congregations in North Africa. Um, and I can't remember exactly who was, descri- who was written that uh, was describing it, because this is obviously in a, in a later period uh, that I'm describing. But the point is, is that they would come in and automatically everyone would be watching them to see, to make sure that they were giving according to what they had. And there was a lot of pressure there. Uh, we see in Acts, uh, not in Acts, uh, in uh, James, for example, a lot of uh, talking about the rich in very negative terms and talking about how the rich don't, for example, they don't deserve any honor, any special honor, and that their wealth is going to be you know, falling away and, and all that thing. So you can see it all throughout the New Testament, wealth, uh, riches, and rich people, there was a very negative connotation. They, they were looked at as bad people, in a sense. Uh, you see it in the Gospels. One story is of the, the rich man who approaches Jesus, and he says, you got to sell everything. And, and that was, in a sense, I mean, that was what is expected. You, if you're um, a wealthy person, that was you in a sense, were, I don't want to say it's a lower position per se, but you had a lot more pressure on you to, to participate uh, more so. Right. Um, it's sort of like what uh, some social scientists call a reverse dominance hierarchy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's interesting. So, okay. So there are lots of things I want to ask you about, lots of directions we can go in from there. I think 
I think we've done a pretty good job so far of just painting the the basic coordinates of 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 what you mean by early Christian communism. One question that comes to mind um, is: Do you do you know the book? I don't know if you cited it or not, but um, do you know the book by uh, Reza Aslan? Yeah, Zealot. Yeah. It, do you talk about that at all in the book or no? I, no. Yeah, so I, I uh, I'm not a religious scholar, and I don't know what yeah. you know is I, uh, influential or not. But I I did read that book a couple years ago, and um, I'm not I'm not sure if he you know how well respected he is. I mean I think he's like decently well respected, but he's been hmm. on like. You know, he did the media round, so I'm not a scholar, so I don't know how legit it is. I, I, but... uh, so, so Reza Aslan, uh, but first of all, before I, before I say, I have to caveat something I said before. Uh, so when it comes to when I'm talking about how, you know, rich people were treated and all that stuff, there's a lot of stuff that we just don't know. And the best we can do is, is, is with the sources we have, the best reconstruction we can make. So I just want to caveat that. So say that, uh, when I'm describing these sort of, um, you know, uh, social relationships and, and pressures and, and like uh, the, the, the uh, sort of systems of organization, um, uh, what I have in my book, I, I'm pretty solid that I can, I can stick by that and say that that is, that is pretty solid. But once I start going beyond that, uh, it, it, I have to caveat it and just say we're working with limited sources and it's, we can't say for sure. As far as uh, Reza Aslan, um, he, how do I, I don't want to, so when it comes to sort of uh, New Testament scholarship and uh, history of early Christianity, he, he would not be one of my go-to uh, guys. Wait, uh, well, real quick, Roman, do you mind just for our listeners, can I rehearse his argument real quick? Go ahead. So just people know what we're talking about and why I mentioned him. Uh, because whatever religious scholars might say and whatever, you know, bones you might pick with the book, uh, if you're into radical politics and at all into Christianity, it's a pretty damn fun book to read. Um, yeah, definitely. Basically, I, and like I said, many caveats about how I don't know shit about the history of religion. So, um, <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm not like a real uh, Catholic or very good one anyway. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. So what he basically says in that book is, or at least the way that I read it is that, um, you know, in, in first century Palestine, for the, one of the first things you have to realize is that there were all kinds of radical, um, uh, basically kind of political theological movements popping up all over the place. So like small sects of, of basically economic and political kind of rebels who were um, speaking out against, you know, the inequality in Judea and Roman rule. And basically, I mean, it was a very common thing for like a small group of people and especially like some sort of like charismatic leader to preach a bunch of prophecies, uh, condemning injustice, and then like trying to basically uh, overthrow shit. <laughs> like this was, this, it was a very volatile landscape and this sort of thing was not uncommon at all. Um, and so, and actually like even when Jesus was crucified, you know, he was probably crucified among a bunch of other people who were similarly crucified uh, for basically similar kinds of treasonous activity. And so the picture that Ereza Aslan paints, at least as, as far as I understood it, was that Jesus was kind of one of many kind of political revolutionaries. He's almost like an anarchist revolutionary is, is the way that he sounds in Reza Aslan's book. Um, so so now you can tell me, you know, so, uh, where so, you depart from that or if you do or not or whatever. Right. So, so the thing is, is um, a lot of what he says is is true. 
so, so most of what you like, basically all you said is, is more or less true, right? Uh, during that time, especially in Galilee, there were all kinds of, you know, revolutionary uh, prophetic movements. I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the famous ones that um, I think is probably, if you want to understand Galilee, uh, there's, uh, there, there's a guy called Judas the Galilean who did an uprising against the census. A, a, uh, and the idea being that there's, this is basically slavery. Ha submitting to the Roman census is no better than slavery. And uh, there, there was that. There were other movements. There were movements that were not violent, but sort of uh, prophetic. So, for example, there was one, um, there was one uh, sort of prophet who was going to go to Jordan. And his promise was he was going to split, he's going to split the Jordan. And it was sort of a, a redoing of uh, Moses uh, and uh, Joshua splitting the Jordan or splitting the Red Sea. And it was a, it's a prophetic gesture, but it was so threatening to the Roman state that they sent in cavalry to basically kill him. So these prophetic movements and um, revolutionary movements were, were tied together and they were widespread and, and they built up eventually to 70 CE with the, the big zealot uprising where they took Jerusalem and the temple got destroyed. So one of his main points is basically uncontroversial in, you know, uh, when, when you study uh, early Christianity and the second temple Judaism is that th the modern distinction we make between politics, religion, uh, economics, uh, the society, those, you can't apply those distinctions to the ancient world. So uh, when the, uh, these Jewish movements in Galilee, in Judea, uh, in Samaria as well, uh, when, when they had a uh, political movement, it was almost always also religious. And when they have religious movements, they're almost always political. So Judas the Galilean, uh, one of his things was that, that if you submit to the Roman census, you're going against God and that you should obey God rather than men. You know, the, the early uh, uh, apostles said the same things when they were being arrested, that we have to obey God rather than men. And out of that came a revolution, an uprising in Galilee. Uh, now, where I differ is that Jesus could be uh, described in the same category as uh, the zealots uh, or, or that movement. Josephus um, calls it the fourth philosophy. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first of all, it's that uh, the zealots were uh, violent. In other words, they were, they were a military movement. So they, uh, their idea was they were going to sort of uh, copy what the Maccabees did uh, to the um, Seleucid Empire a couple centuries earlier, have a armed uprising, a military uprising, reestablish the kingdom by force, and, and then they would have, you know, God's favor. Uh, Jesus very specifically didn't do that. And uh, he was very, um, he, he was nonviolent. And, and Reza Aslan acknowledges that in his book. Uh, and, and not only that, but he's... His movement was um, much, it, it was eschatological, meaning it was, 
his idea was that God was going to come, intervene, and set things straight. And he had this kind of sort of kingdom of God coming to set things straight uh, idea. And it was uh, apocalyptic. So he used a lot of the imagery from, um, so for example, in the Gospels, it talks about the Son of Man. That's apocalyptic imagery uh, from the book of Daniel. It's also in you know, the book of Enoch. And this is the idea of, it's an eschatological idea of these, this heavenly figure coming down and, uh, you know, uh, putting things straight for God, setting up the kingdom of God. So that's what Jesus was, was about. Now, I'm not, I don't really get so much into the historical Jesus stuff as the same way Reza Aslan does. But he, his idea of Jesus as kind of like a, a failed revolutionary, I don't think it, it fits um, unless you really, you know, you open the, the category of zealot so wide to where it basically would include every prophetic um, movement. Uh, in, in that case, it would include the Essenes as well, you know. Um, okay, so you make a distinction between the more explicitly political revolutionary movements, such as the Zealots, from Jesus, who was more eschatological, you would say. I, I, I would say that, but I wouldn't say it's any less political. Right, right. Um, it just, it just, it didn't have the express instrumental goal of right. of changing so, the political uh, landscape. It was a so purely basically the difference is yeah the difference is is for the Zealots they got to do the dirty work for Jesus. God's going to do the dirty work. That's that's basically different. So his his idea of now you have to remember we we live in modern times in the kind of disenchanted uh, era, you know, uh, and so we we think of turn in terms of like um, you know heaven. If you believe in God, if you're religious, there's heaven out there that's that's its own different realm. That you know when you die or whatever or sometime in the future, um, that's going to be relevant. And then there's the earth, which is the political, historical, material realm. Uh, and uh, then you have the forces of history and the politics. Back then, it wasn't like that. Back then, you, the, the view was like heaven and earth, you know, using those terms very broadly, were intertwined. Uh, you know, um, one uh, scholar that makes a, a very... That, that describes this very well is uh, N.T. Wright, who, who describes basically how uh, heaven and earth were always intersecting and clashing. So whenever they talk about, uh, you know, uh, in the New Testament, it talks about like the powers and principalities. Uh, Paul talks about that. And some people discuss, you know, well, was he talking about, you know, earthly you know, Caesar and the kings? Or was he talking about sort of, uh, heavenly figure, a aeons, as they were called, like the, the uh, divine, uh, the gods, you could say, that were ruling over the different nations. And, and really, it's both, uh, because those things were intertwined. Uh, right. For right. example, Augustus oh. Caesar oh. was called the son of God. And he was a divine figure. And uh, it, it, for them, it's, it's not metaphorical. Uh, he really is a divine figure. So, right. Uh, so, so that's um, one distinction that I think we have to be careful to not sort of force anachronistically into the first century. Sure. Okay. Yeah. No, that's really good. That's really useful. Um, 
Roman, do you? Oh, real quick, uh, we have a we have a, a comment from a viewer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we don't have to respond to it, but if it if you want, I'll just throw sure. it up. I'll throw it up there. If you have anything to add to it, um, you can. If we want to just keep going, that's cool too. But I feel like if people are going to write us questions, uh, the least we can do is uh, express them for them. So uh, yeah, uh, sure. A one uh, Roger Hicks says that the ideals of communism, it seems to me, are rooted in human tribal nature which evolved long before the first states and civilizations emerged from what must have been a very tribal environment. Um, yeah. So I guess what Roger is kind of getting at is that there's something, there's something very deep about communism that speaks to uh, something almost hardwired in us uh, as, as, as human beings. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd agree with that, but I'd say like uh, some people, I, I don't think it's just a tribal thing. Uh, mm. I think, I mean, communism exists today in everyday life as much as possible. The, in order to, uh, for communism, in a sense, to be uh, suppressed, the, now this is like, this has nothing to do with the, you know, first, second century Christianity. This is just sort of my uh, view of things. Sure. You basically need uh, political forces of violence to suppress it. Uh, and, and one way to see that is you go back to the Middle Ages and uh, how did capitalism start? Well, you got you to shut down the commons. You got to do that. You got to force people uh, away from the commons, not give them access to that so that they have to go to the cities and start working, uh, you know, for, for the factories. You have to enforce uh, strict private property laws in areas that were once, you know, common to make that happen. Uh, it's, uh, you have to force commodification Right. So in my in my idea, that's it's basically communism is just the way people naturally interact with each other. If there's no um, uh, sort of uh, threat of violence going on. Do you know uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's book? Do you talk about uh, that? The, no, no. Uh, the one uh, it's called Dancing in the Streets. I've heard of that book, but it's I not, haven't. It's not, yeah, it's not like about Christianity. I wouldn't necessarily expect you to know it or no. talk about it in your book. But there, there's a subsection in there somewhere about uh, early Christianity, actually. I think you'd find it. Oh. Yeah, I think you'd find it very interesting. Um, and I, I remembered it. And actually, this morning, I was kind of reviewing it a little bit uh, before this podcast because uh, I was curious about remembering what she talks about. And um, so I'll, I'll kind of rehearse for you real quickly what she says about early Christianity. And okay. you can let me know if it resonates with what you know about the period. Um, but basically... If I understand her correctly, what and so her book is basically a, it's a history of collective joy. And so basically she's very interested in uh, the history of kind of ecstatic ritual uh, and all the different things that human beings have done throughout time to basically uh, commune together in deeply bonding and pleasurable ways. Um, and so okay. uh, and basically her kind of hypothesis or kind of starting point for the book is that if, if you look over the, the course of human history, it, it sure seems like human beings used to do that sort of thing way more than they do now. Uh, and that, especially in kind of ancient times, there were all kinds of ecstatic rituals and, and different forms of collective uh, ecstasy, uh, pu especially public um, collective ecstasy. And so her book is all about the history of basically, yeah, public forms of, of, of collective joy. And so she talks about early Christianity as a kind of... Um, a kind of adaptation of the Dionysian cults or, or the Bacchus cults. Yeah. Um, 
And so the way she kind of tells the story is that uh, in this kind of first century Palestine period that, that we're talking about, uh, so I guess around the same time that, uh, you know, people like Reza Aslan are describing all of these kind of uh, radical theological, political upstart projects, there is also a, a very widespread culture of, um, of what, yeah, what you'd call ecstatic ritual. So different cults that basically engage in really kind of uh, frenzied forms of dancing, uh, sacrifice, um, eating and drinking, you know, festivities in a, in a kind of spiritualized way. And so the, the most famous kind of emblem of that is Dionysus, uh, you know, who's associated with wine. There were, there were lots of little cults that worshiped Dionysus and they were known for their, um, you know, very uh, exuberant and, and indulgent uh, rituals involving sex and, you know, women running out of the home to go into the woods and, um, you know, fling their clothes off and, and howl at the moon while they're drunk on wine and all these sorts of things. There were all different types of groups engaging in this sort of stuff. Um, and so it was religious, it was ecstatic, and it had to do with basically things like dancing and eating in public in, in exuberant ways together, okay? And so there was all that kind of stuff going on in the, in the pre-Christian moment, uh, often under the name of Dionysus or Bacchus or whatever. Um, and what she argues is that, that <laughs> what she argues is that stuff was uh, seriously repressed by the Romans for the obvious reason that it's a major political threat, uh, you know, to have, uh, you know, women running out of their houses and stuff like that in, into the woods to, 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 you know, celebrate in frenzied orgies and things like that. Uh, so once it was repressed by the Romans, um, that she sees Christianity, or, and, and in particular the Christ figure, as a kind of adaptation to that problem. Uh, and she argues that basically before Christ, you know, on the one hand there was Yahweh, um, and who was a kind of patriarchal, uh, you know, very militaristic, kind of stern, uh, repressive type of spiritual figure. Um, and then there were these like feminine ecstatic cults. But basically what she argues is that the Christ figure is kind of like emerging of kind of the harshness of Yahweh and the, the kind of patriarchal uh, kind of control mechanisms associated with uh, Yahweh, but also the feminine ecstatic rituals and, and, the, and, and that kind of ecstatic collective joyous tendency. She basically argues that Christ was kind of like a, uh, a solution to, to squaring that, that, uh, that, that kind of trade-off or something like that. And basically the, the, the final point I'll make is that uh, is just the empirical one uh, where mm -hmm. she kind of, she marshals a lot of evidence to show that just like you show um, that the early Christians were essentially communists in their relationships mm -hmm. and material organization. Well, she shows uh, or at least marshals a fair amount of evidence suggesting that in the first and second century Palestine, the early Christian communities um, also uh, prioritized uh, all kinds of ecstatic uh, rituals, uh, right. eating, singing, dancing, often in, in rather extreme, um, quite exuberant ways to the point that, you know, over time, you know, even St. Paul was kind of quoted here and there as uh, trying to needing to sort of repress it because it was getting out of hand. So I'm just curious if you know much about that and how it seems, I, to, it seems to directly feed into your argument about how these early Christians were communists. They also seem to be kind of uh, exuberant, joyous, um, collective, uh, you know, celebrators also. I wonder what you think about that. Well, well, so I'd have to look at her, um, her work specifically, but uh, I'm hearing myself echo. Let's see. Okay. 
I think we're good now. I can mic. Yeah. I'll mute the microphone. That might be. Uh, okay. So uh, I it's uh, so it's difficult to say without reading exactly what evidence she's uh, showing, but but I will say the thing with uh, using uh, the mystery cults and Dionysus was uh, one of these mystery cults, which were basically you know uh, around the time when Jesus came in uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that people were becoming unsatisfied with the sort of traditional uh, uh, religious cult that existed, which were just the, the national gods, the city gods, and that these mystery cults were gaining a lot of popularity. And Dionysus was one of them. And they would, you'd go in, uh, you'd do some kind of uh, initiation ritual. They were very secretive. And you'd have the sort of rituals that you were talking about. And, um, you know, There'd be, uh, you know, uh, different uh, things that people would do. There'd be different uh, uh, sort of um, sacrifices and stuff like that. But the, the, I, I don't think that those should be the primary sort of background uh, for describing early Christianity. And there's, there's a couple of reasons. A lot of these mystery cults, it would be wrong to call them communities, uh, these were not things that you were part of as a community. Uh, they were more, um, uh, you could say, kind of like a club that you would go to. Uh, it's, it's not a perfect parallel, but people would. So, for example, you could be part of uh, one mystery cult, Dionysus cult. You could be part of a, another one. And you could also, you know, sacrifice at your, your local, uh, you know, um, national uh, you know, uh, temple or cultic uh, uh, rituals. So these weren't exactly communities in the same way that the uh, Christian communities were, the ecclesias were. Uh, in my opinion, the best model for the ecclesias is the synagogues, uh, the Jewish synagogue. And I think the best way to describe early Christianity is primarily through the Judean Galilean and diaspora Jewish communities. Now, okay, it, it's there's no doubt that these mystery cults um, had a later effect on Christianity, and there is no doubt that there were certain um, uh, sort of practices. So, so for example, uh, there's in Paul's letters he talks about you know that the women, uh, you know, it, it's it's very it's seen very often as very patriarchal, like the women have to be silent. Uh, the men are going to do the talking. And it's, as you said, in a lot of these, you know, uh, religious movements, these cults, it was very much the feminine. The, the, the women were the ones that would run the rituals. Uh, that would be the sort of uh, uh, the oracles and so on. And, and Paul was, in that sense, trying to avoid that coming in, that practice coming in, you know, uh, whatever you want to think about that. Uh, another thing is, so for example, the Eucharist, uh, which we now know today as the, you know, little cracker and wine representing the blood and body of Christ, um, or if you're a Catholic, the blood and body of Christ. Uh, but but that back then you had the Eucharist and the agape meal, uh, which was a feast. And they had these large feasts. And we know Paul uh, sort of said, some things warning about people overeating, over drinking. We know that later on, um, some of the church fathers, I, I think it was Augustine, actually said that they should just stop that altogether because it's getting a little too wild. 
But I, I don't, uh, I, I'm not sure I would jump on board with using uh, the Dionysian mystery cults as sort of the, the framework for early Christianity. I, I do think that it grew organically out of Galilean and Judean Christianity. Now, as, as it spread outside um, to the diaspora, it was originally uh, almost entirely uh, Jewish. Uh, and what they called God-fearers who were uh, Gentiles who, who basically would join Christian communities uh, as uh, um, people who were sort of fans of the religion. And they weren't full Jews, but they would go to the synagogue. They, they respected the, uh, the practices. And then it was after 70 CE, the destruction of Jerusalem, that there started to be a, sh a sort of uh, rift between Judaism and Christianity, there actually started to be, you know, a difference between people would be able to tell that, well, no, these are a special sect, the Christians. And it was after 130 CE, the Bar Kokhba revolt, that it sort of became its own religion. And there's, there's various reasons for that, that there really became the break after um, 130 CE, that the Christians distanced themselves from the Jews and vice versa. But prior to that, okay. it, it was prior to that Christianity was basically a, uh, one of the sects of Judaism, and um, and that would be the main sort of way to reconstruct it. And I, I'm I'm not saying that it would be inappropriate to look at the mystery cults and and use them as parallels, but right. just how much you'd be able to make out of that as a sort of direct connection, uh, you'd have to be. Um, you have to be careful there because if, just because there is a, a, right. a direct connection, in other words, there's a parallel, doesn't mean that you can make yeah. a causal connection. Um, so yeah, 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 for sure. I, I, so I totally see how you're, how you're thinking about it. You're thinking about it as a kind of uh, scholar of, you know, early Christianity and, you know, all these details. But I think for the, for the average listener, it is really useful to um, think about early Christian communism with this sort of background, because, you know, and and I don't think Erin Reich is is overstating the case. I think she would she would probably agree with your your qualifications. Um, but I think what's interesting about it for you know maybe the average listener is that Christianity is often seen as this very stern, controlling kind right. of um, uh, project, and also communism is often seen in a strangely similar way. It's associated with things like Stalin and you know everyone. Uh, you know, coming to steal your private property uh, and, you know, kind of the dour, uh, socially controlling faces of contemporary activists who just want to police, you know, your language and uh, make you, you know, uh, make you pay more taxes, right? Uh, right? There's this sort of dourness that's associated with, I think, both Christianity and communism. But, you know, you read books like your book and Aaron Reich's book or Reza Aslan's book, you read all of these these different types of books and you get a few different angles on the, on, on the moment of Jesus Christ and, and the Christian communities as you, you realize it, it's totally different. And like what, what is actually going on with this Christian idea and this Christian movement is almost, it's almost impossible for modern people to, to understand because our, our kind of intuitions have become so, have been so conditioned and kind of demoralized really uh, through, you know, mo through modernity and capitalism and all of these kinds of disciplining forces um, 
that, you know, at the bottom of Christianity is this kind of um, insanely radical, rambunctious, revolutionary, ecstatic um, kind of vision mm-hmm. of how people can, uh, people don't need to exploit each other and people don't need to calculate and people can just radically invest themselves in each other without instrumental, you know, rational exploitation. And if everyone just has faith that that will work, that it actually in the end does work. Um, and yeah, so, so, I mean, it's, 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 it's a kind of emotional, um, revolution that is the opposite of dower in some ways. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I think is, is important with, uh, with early Christianity is to understand that, that what they were doing basically is they, so they, as I said before, it was originally primarily an eschatological movement. So what they were doing was basically saying, okay, this is how the world will be, uh, with, with, um, the eschaton. So we're going to live that now. Uh, we're going to build communities now that reflect that. So, you know, they, uh, they were in a sense, you could say an internationalist movement. So they, uh, didn't, um, uh, for example, they, they didn't join the military, uh, and they, uh, that got them in a lot of trouble. Um, and they, they also, uh, you know, uh, Paul makes a big point to sort of uh, make sure that Christianity is universalist. So he would say, you know, uh, there's no Jew, no Gentile. He made a big deal that anyone can be part of Israel um, through faith, uh, that anyone can sort of join the promises that God gave through Israel. So it was very uh, internationalist. So it was one, one thing that I think is interesting about the guy who commented earlier about the tribal uh, nature of communism, that's definitely, but one thing that Christianity was doing was trying to make a sort of universal tribe, right? Right. Uh, Where what bound people together was not sort of like uh, ethnic or national identities, but this faith uh, that they had in in Christ and that they were dedicated to uh, the message uh, of, you know, the kingdom of God. Um, uh, another thing that I think is important to remember is that uh, when, when they were building these communities, it, it's, it was not about um, individual um, salvation in the sense. And uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, modern scholarship on rethinking Paul's uh, theology um, uh, E.P. Sanders, um, uh, I think uh, James Dunn also contributes to this, uh, N.T. Wright, it's called the, the New Perspective on Paul, which is that he is basically should be seen not as sort of departing from Judaism, but as a continuation of it, and that his idea of salvation is not individual but corporate, that uh, it's the community, the group, uh, the, uh, the sort of new people of God uh, that gets saved. So it was a community movement and um uh you know when people talk about it it being you know restrictive or something like that i mean you have to it depends what you're comparing it to you know and it depends what exactly you're talking about so 
of course, there were, um, you know, uh, things that the, the Christians were uh, promoting or doing that, you know, modern people might think of as uh, restrictive. But again, the, the way you have to look at these movements is from the standpoint of their own time period and how uh, they would be seen by the people of their own time period. Uh, you know, there's different, many different sort of apologias, uh, which is, uh, you know, a sort of defense of the faith by um, uh, the Christians. And the, one of them is uh, early is a uh, Diognetius, an epistle to Diognetius. And then later on, you have, again, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, other ones. And they would write to uh, non-Christians and even to, you know, emperors to try and say who they were and that, that there was, that they, to try and stop persecution against the Christians. And what I think is interesting about those letters is just to show how afraid the authorities were of uh, groups like this and how they, these groups were desperately trying to say, look, we're, we're not, um, you know, trying to destroy society as you think we are. And uh, so it, it is, I think it would be, it's, and interesting to think about what made groups like this such a threat. Um, so one thing that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go on. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to no, ask, I was just gonna ask s- a question. Like that. I was just going to add one more thing that um, during that time period, there were rumors going around that uh, Christians were, uh, you know, incestuous, that they were um, uh, cannibals like these crazy rumors that would go around and there would be all kinds of uh, other threats. So for example, there's a, um, there was a guy called Kelsus who wrote this big book against the Christians. And he basically said that the Christians are uh, destroying society and that, uh, you know, that by their abandoning of the gods, they were basically, uh, you know, deviants who were anti-society. So, it's it's important to look at what the Christians were in their own world and see how people in that world viewed them. Um, yeah, so that's what I wanted to say there. Okay, yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, something that I was thinking about is there is this kind of common objection to communism and that, that I want to kind of think about because one of the... One of the things that I find most interesting and cool about your book is that when you look at how the early Christian communists were, how the early Christians were communists, what you realize is that in, in at least this one way, communism mm-hmm. does work. It can work. I mean, the, the overwhelming kind of uh, problem with the way people see communism today is like it's just seen as an absurdly stupid uh, political philosophy or program because it simply can't work. Everywhere it's ever been tried, it doesn't work. And there is a, a tremendous amount of, you know, empirical support for that for that view that communism doesn't work, it can't work. But, but if you look at the early Christians, you know, it it actually can work in this in this peculiar sort of way. Um and so that's why I think your book is really important and valuable and interesting because if you're interested in communism, you really have to understand the early Christians. You have to think real hard about why it was why communism seems uniquely sustainable um in this kind of unique spiritual um framework uh, and so what i'm really after um one of the things i'm really trying to extract from this conversation more than anything else is 
is trying to is trying to figure out what exactly is it that um, somehow like what was the what was the the unique Christian solution that made communism workable as not just in small groups but as you say as a universalist project that actually had imminently expanding um, and and increasingly powerful kind of geopolitical uh, effectiveness and and reality to it so. Um, yeah, I have a, a few kind of specific subpoints I kind of want to go into on that, but that's my kind of. I, I wanted um, to say say a, one a thing yeah, in, in between is that, um, you know, it, it, in a sense, these these uh, communities were kind of small scale, but one of the very uh, first sort of international actions of the Christian movement was a international uh, redistribution of goods. Uh, Paul would go around, and that was his, one of his big missions, was going around to the different communities in places like Asia Minor and Greece to collect funds for Jerusalem, uh, who's, uh, were in that area there was a famine. So he was collecting funds. So there was an international redistribution going on. Uh, so it, it's not just like, oh, it, it only works small scale. Well, Well, no, very early on, there was a you know, a, uh, a, um, an international redistribution going on. And, you know, when, when people say that communism doesn't work, uh, it, it, to me, what they're really saying is uh, Leninism applied in the 20th century doesn't work. And uh, okay. And, and then again, it depends what you mean by works. And, uh, you know, yeah, there's a lot of problems with that model, and I would not recommend it. But, you know, generally when they say communism doesn't work, they, they always go back to certain presuppositions about human nature that are empirically just untrue. So a lot of times they'll, they'll go back to saying, uh, they'll basically assume the homo economicus model, which is, well, you know, uh, of course, people want to, you know, maximize their own gain. So people are selfish. So if you have like, uh, you know, if, if there is some sort of communism, everyone will take advantage of it. And uh, then, you know, the tragedy of the commons, uh, that example. But we know through sort of psychological studies, anthropological studies, sociology, that homo economicus is a completely bunk idea. Uh, that's not how humans function. That's never how humans functioned. Uh, in fact, to get people to function that way, you have to have a lot of, uh, you know, institutional forces to force that to happen. People just generally are not, they're not like that. Humans are naturally social and they naturally care about, you know, recognition uh, more so than personal gain. So, you know, uh, that's why, you know, you have the tragedy of the commons, this concept, but then when you actually, you know, read some, you know, anthropology uh, about pre-state societies, you don't really have that, that same problem. You know, people are not acting in the homo economicus model. And the same right. goes with private um, property. I mean, private property is a state institution. It's a, just like uh, governments are. There is no, uh, you know, state of nature, axiomatic uh, necessity for, for private property. I mean, I think this all goes back to John Locke and uh, some sort mm. of, in my view, fundamental 
mistakes he made that sort of have bled out into the whole sort of liberal um, market uh, way of looking at the world, uh, which ends up making people say that communism is impossible and that capitalism is just the way humans normally act and it's inevitable. So um, someone named Zach Palmer just wrote something on the YouTube stream saying, uh, bringing up a good point. He mentions uh, Badiou. Are you familiar with Badiou at all? Yeah. I quote him in my yeah, book. Yeah, so do you know, have you, oh, okay, he's in there. I wasn't sure if he was in there. So you, you, you're you familiar with the book on St. Paul? Uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't read it, but I, I know the, um, I know the sort of, you know, the, the interest uh, in Paul among continental philosophers, uh, left-wing continental philosophers, Zizek, uh, Badiou, and uh, a lot of those guys I, I know have recently been very and interested yeah. in Paul. Yeah. And theology. Yeah. Um, so extremely well-versed uh, in Badiou, or specifically, I haven't read his book at all, the, the book on St. Paul, that is. Um, but uh, Zach mentions the point that, yeah, Badiou traces the communist universal subject back to St. Paul. And so I can definitely, I can definitely uh, see that argument. Uh, I don't know, but I, I guess I, neither of us are very well versed on it. So we can't say too much about it. Yeah. No, I haven't read his book. So I, I can't, uh, I've read his book on, on love, which I, I really like, and uh, I, I recommend it, but I haven't read his book on Paul. Yeah, I've read a few, of, I've read a few of his books too. And I, I think he's, I think he's brilliant but, uh, for the most part, but uh, yeah, I can't comment on, on, on the Paul idea too much. Although, I mean, I, what I can say is that it seems obvious, not obvious, but uh, it's, it does seem undeniable to me that um, the, the history of modern communism as a political movement, as a political philosophy also draws heavily on uh, basically Christian foundations. Although you, obviously- you, uh, it, you, it, you went out uh, for a second there. I didn't hear the, the last thing you said. You said modern communism. Oh, sorry, I, I, I uh, lost uh, I lost the audio. Sure. Yeah. Sorry about that. No worries. Um, I was just saying that it seems quite clear that modern communism as a movement and as a philosophy is drawing on Christian foundations in a, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Right. But obviously, it you know, religion at a certain point with the after the scientific revolution, religion becomes you know, a real kind of marketing problem. It's not very good for PR if you're like still talking about God uh, after yeah. a certain point. So I think like Marx is very keen to uh, try to lay everything out in scientific terms. But I think it's pretty obvious that uh, you you kind of don't get modern communism without drawing on kind of implicit Christian foundations. Like I am familiar with uh, Walter Benjamin's writings on the on on this question a little bit. I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, right. his, his notion of what he calls weak messianism, that Marxism is, you know, highly eschatological in obvious ways and that, it, and that it's even messianic in a certain way. Yeah. Um, now, now this is, I, I <laughs> this is one th problem that I have with um, uh, a lot of the sort of, uh, new interest that a lot of this the secular left has in theology not not that i have a problem hmm. that they have an interest i think it's i think it's great i wish everyone more people had an interest in uh, you know christianity and uh, theology but I, I i do think that like 
Okay, one really good example of this is, is Slavoj Žižek, and a lot of people, you know, love or hate him, but he, his main interest in theology, and he's written books with a lot of, you know, quite prominent theologians, uh, is he wants to have a secular theology, a, a atheist materialist theology. And, uh, you know, and that's like what you said, and what's a lot of people have noticed uh, that uh, the modern communist movement has ex very, very uh, easy to see Christian uh, eschatological uh, roots, uh, you know, messianist uh, roots, but it's secularized. And I, I, my own opinion is it just doesn't work. I think that, um, uh, that, that ultimately secularism, uh, atheism, is uh, the religion of capitalism. Uh, and it's, uh, it, you know, David Bentley Hart basically says that, that uh, secularism, that capitalism is basically, uh, and secularism go hand in hand. And because the, 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 the fundamental assumptions that capitalism relies on are, are very secular. Uh, the, and I would say that, um, you know, in Nietzschean worldview, a sort of nihilistic uh, Nietzschean worldview fits a lot better uh, with the idea of having, um, uh, you know, a, a, a capitalist competitive market where you put everyone at each other's throats, that the, uh, the entire point is to maximize profit and you have uh, things to enforce that uh, uh, to make sure that that's how the economy is running. And um, that, that fits just much better with a secular worldview. And I think ultimately uh, Marx and, you know, uh, again, I'm not the only, you know, there's been a lot of people that have noticed this, uh, that, that Marx, um, Terry Eagleton is, a, is another person who, who makes this point a lot, that, uh, you know, Marx was a lot more, um, a lot less materialist than a lot of people uh, kind of make him out to be. I mean, any time where you have a a and a uh, ideology, we're trying to describe this is what should be the case. This is the society that should be the case, where the assumption is automatic sort of human dignity uh, from the beginning, and it is saying that every person has human dignity, uh, irregardless of what their position is in life, or irregardless of what power they can muster and that this is society should run on that basic assumption. You're already in Christianity uh, at that point um, because, you know, uh, Christianity was one of the, as far as I know, the, the movement that made that uh, assumption um, uh, foundational, you know, in, in ancient Rome and in ancient uh, Greece, the idea of a sort of universal fundamental dignity of mankind, of every uh, person, it, it just wasn't there. I mean, people try and find it in the Stoics or whatever, but if you read them carefully, it's, it's just not there. Okay, that's a really good place to pause. I want to ask you about that then, because I'm, I'm very sure what you said. Um, real quick, do you, have a, do you know much about the other world religions? Or no, not really. Not, uh, not, 
<laughs> not to where I could uh, say anything with any authority. Um, but I mean, I, I, I you, know what you said, vaguely. So what you just said, you, you think that uh, Christianity is unique in some regard with the emphasis it places on the absolute dignity of all beings. I'm, I'm curious. And if you just don't know, that's fine. But I'm curious, like if the other world religions have that tenant well, also or to a less degree. Well, well here's what I would say. Um, so uh, th there are um, other uh, uh, people who have sort of, you know, done more work on this, um, uh, on how uh, the, the ideas within Christianity were uh, sort of seminal in, in uh, sort of liberal uh, and uh, even socialist uh, values that came after it. But uh, for example, uh, the, the whole idea of uh, the, the Christ, the Messiah, which is, uh, so for, in Mark, for example, Jesus is basically described as a kind of anti-Caesar. He's a reverse Caesar. He is, like Caesar, the son of God. In fact, the, the, the good news of the son of God, that was a title uh, for, um, that was a, a uh, how do you say, a sort of um, uh, a slogan for the emperor. Augustus was the son of God. And when he became the emperor, he was the savior. So they would go around and talk about Augustus, the savior, the son of God. And that's what Jesus was. He was sort of like portrayed in these sort of imperial, um, uh, this imperial title. And uh, he would do things like, you know, ride in Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, you know, clearly sort of being portrayed as a sort of king. But he was... The anti-king. He was this poor peasant uh, who was uh, of no one of any importance. Uh, he, his uh, sort of co, his, his apostles were also a bunch of peasants. And he ended up getting executed by the state in the worst possible way as a, as a slave would get executed. And so this sort of Christian idea of taking the lowest and, and raising it to the highest in, in terms of dignity, um, that the, 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 the executed, tortured peasant, that that is the Messiah, the ruler of the world. Uh, I think that idea, uh, along with ideas that come from Judaism, and so, you know, uh, Judaism has a very, very strong um, what you could broadly call sort of social justice tradition uh, in terms of, uh, you know, caring for the poor, caring for the widow. Uh, the, the Mosaic law was unique uh, in the uh, early Near Eastern, the ancient Near Eastern laws, in that it sp had specific uh, command that the outsider, the uh, sojourner, uh, should be treated the same way as an Israelite. So, Christianity took that and then added this whole, you know, uh, the idea of the Messiah as this sort of suffering peasant. And I think that idea, uh, along with uh, the idea of sort of the God of history, which is, is different, as I understand it, from, say, uh, some of the Eastern traditions. Now, I, I could be com 
completely out of line here. I am not. I don't know much about the Eastern traditions, but as I understand it, they they don't have a sort of uh, god of history. Uh, they don't that um, who uh, who is like a, who is directing history to a specific end, um, or who has. Uh, in other words, in those Eastern religions, they're not esch eschatological, as far as I understand them. Um, right. I, so I know okay. So. Yeah. yeah. So, and the other thing is, is that Christianity inherited from Judaism a very uh, a, a a collective identity that it was, uh, you know, it's it's love your love God and love your neighbor, and the love your neighbor is is just as much part of it. So this idea of koinonia fellowship, which is that that each person has an absolute uh, obligation, a primordial obligation uh, to his fellow uh, prior to any sort of contract or anything that they have, that that obligation is there from the beginning. Uh, that is something that is, is in the Christian tradition. Now, as far as the Eastern religions, I, I, I don't, I can't say but I can say that when it comes to the, the Greco-Roman religions um, and the, the religions that Christianity was competing with in that time period, it was completely unique in that sense, uh, in, in right. the, the other sort of options, as it were, during that time period. Right. So I, I want to go back to something you said um, before when you were saying that it's now kind of fashionable for kind of radical lefty continental philosophers to try and uh, kind of reclaim a certain kind of theology, but in a way that's ultimately secular and how you think that that just doesn't work. I think we can talk about this for a little while now because I basically totally agree. And what I'll kind of just share with you my, the view that I've been coming to recently, and I'll be curious to hear what you think about it, but Basically, so, I, you know, I was I've, I've been involved in radical politics for like since Occupy, since about like 2011 is when I got really into radical left wing kind of thought and activity and stuff like that. And so since 2011, I, I've been like involved in a bunch of radical left groups and really, you know, for quite a while was pretty passionate about trying to like, like, let's figure out how to overthrow capitalism. Like, let's really try to do it. I was really jazzed on it. And I had the kind of the enthusiasm that. Occupy was able to give us because we had actually something that was going on that was really live and it was exciting. So I had that kind of uh, real active personal enthusiasm and, and confidence that comes from being immersed in an actual kind of somewhat insurrectionary moment. And so for like six years after that, really, I I was really, you know, the a deep belief I had that like actually human beings, I really do think that human beings can fundamentally change the, the current uh, state of the world um, in fundamental ways. Like I, I deeply believe it's it's within our ability to do it and that we are ethically obligated to do it. Um, but I, you know, I was raised Catholic, but I, I've never been, I've never practiced really since I, ever since I got my confirmation when I was like 14, mm -hmm. I kind of fell away from it and uh, would never say that I'm, you know, I would basically say I'm an atheist for most of my life is what I would always say. Um, so with that as context, like what happened with me was that in all of the kind of radical activist groups that I was a part of, in kind of the incessant failures 
and the the ultimate futility of everything that we ever tried to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always kind of sensed that there was something foundationally wrong. There was something just basically on a very basic level that 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 was rotten. There, there was something not quite there. Um, and that even more, you know, a little bit more sinisterly, there were certain kind of uh, false or disingenuous or maybe even bad faith kind of premises that I, I really have long felt to be one of the real causes of why the radical left is, is, is basically useless and impotent and completely unable to change the world in the ways that it claims to want to. And, you know, the short of it is that over the past couple of years, I've really been starting to think that religion has something to do with it or, or really more, more generally, um, the question of rationality and, uh, and, uh, how, how we think about those things or, or don't think about them. Uh, and so I'll just try to spell out a little bit more detail what I'm, what I have in mind here, because I think it's, it's basically exactly what you were saying in some degree. I, I suspect from what you were saying before, you're going to agree with this, but you know, maybe you'll disagree in interesting ways, but basically I'm coming to the view nowadays that you simply cannot have a revolutionary political project, let alone movement without some basic foundation that is ultimately on some level religious. Um, and that if you try to have a radical political project, um, you know, even, even a simple one, but certainly anything that pretends to be, you know, committed to changing, you know, the fundamental tenets of the status quo political order. Like if you're, if you're interested in doing that and you're also, you're also committed to not being religious, um, you're, what you're going to get in the end is a project that is itself, like you said, uh, basically a kind of capitalist religion that is going to sneak in the back door, whether you like it or not. Um, you know, I like, I really like what you said that like secularism is the religion of capitalism. I think that's absolutely right. Like if you're, if you think that you're an atheist or an agnostic, but you want to be, you want, you want to support revolutionary politics and try and overthrowism or something like that, it's inevitable that what you're going to basically, you're basically going to become a, 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 a devotee of the religion of secularism, which is basically um, going to keep you always locked into capitalist uh, modes of behavior. Um, and so that's kind of, that's what I think. Uh, I haven't yeah. really solved yeah, what to do I, next, I, I but can, I'm curious if that resonates with you. It completely does. So uh, the reason I say secularism is kind of like the religion of capitalism is that the, the, the underlying, I mean, now secularism is a broad term, but the underlying uh, idea is that there is no higher uh, fundamental sort of uh, you know, moral law uh, and that each person basically has to choose for himself what the, the, the moral obligations he has and uh, what moral obligations he doesn't have. He basically creates his own uh, uh, you know, worldview, framework, and everything, and that there is no uh, higher one. That's you know, secularism. That when you say that there is, if, you, if you're going to go out there and say there is no God, we live in a material universe, you know, that's it. Well, then any moral obligation that someone has to someone else is completely uh, going to be self-generated, 
uh, or contractual. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there's, there's, you know, there's other ways that that could happen. I mean, there, there could be just sort of like, you know, social pressures and so on that, uh, that, that creates some sort of obligation, but, but ultimately the ideology is that it has to be self uh, driven uh, from yourself uh, or it's, it's not there. Um, and another, uh, and basically the result of that is uh, when you have capitalism, the idea of capitalism, especially modern day capitalism is everyone is an entrepreneur. Everyone is their own capitalist. So, you know, the, the, the worker is just trying to get the most for himself. He's trying to build his own, you know, well, so he can participate, participate in the market. Everyone's entering these contracts with one another. Um, not, there's no, uh, you know, obligation. It has to be uh, for self-interest. And uh, there's the, this uh, idea that, you know, uh, because everything, capitalism commodifies everything. It turns everything into uh, something which is to be bought and sold in the market. And uh, it has to keep doing that in order to keep growing, right? So, uh, you know, and, and this goes into a little bit of, of economics, but uh, that, uh, you know, profitability, return on investment has to continue to happen. So they have to find new ways to turn some things into commodities, which means something that people create to sell, to maximize their own profit. And that's completely in line with the idea of secularism, that there is no higher sort of moral law. Uh, now, there's a lot of secular people who would not say that, that they'd say, well, there is you know, morality, but there's really um, any, any morality that they say, that the, any obligation that someone has the, the only way that they can sort of build a foundation for that is uh, actually, I don't think there is any way. Uh, they just have to say that's right. just the way it is. Uh, so when it comes to sort of, you know, the, the secular, um, you know, left wing politics, I, I think there's, there's so there's a lot of things wrong. So take, take a lot of protest movements. Um, I, I think a lot of protest movements are, very often, now I'm not saying that they, they don't do good. Very often they do, they have very positive outcomes and they actually do accomplish things. But, but a lot of times it's sort of more a way to show your own, um, that, that you've taken a stand and that you uh, disapprove of something. You're not so much creating mm -hmm. something new. You're just saying, I disagree with this thing that's happening there. Uh, from the, you know, the, the moral framework that I've constructed for myself. Um, this mm -hmm. is wrong, uh, what you guys are doing. But, but I always think, for me, I think the best way, if you, if you have a problem with capitalism and you don't like it, the best way, uh, or at least one good way, is to think in terms of what things are commodified and what things aren't. I think one of the, two of the, the best institutions that sort of uh, give a, uh, a living alternative to capitalism are things like public parks and libraries. I mean, if you think about the, uh, the, the logic and, and family of a family public park too, or the logic of a library, it completely 
just throws away the uh, underlying ideologies of capitalism. You know, the idea that, you know, in a library, you could go in and borrow a, a book, which is maybe expensive, it may be an expensive scholarly book, and people are going to do that all the time, and uh, then return it and get a new one. It's, you have this sort of common uh, institution. Now, it's not a, it's, it's a small thing, right, a library. It's not, it, this is not threatening capitalism. Uh, the same thing with public parks. You go to a public park and you can, you know, take your family out uh, for free. You know, you're not paying for it. You can go to where they have the bars and you can work out for free. No one's paying for it, you know, and yet it works, right? Uh, I mean, there, there's so many examples of this. I mean, uh, of, of just yeah. things in the world now. So I think the, the way that people could be thinking, at least this is the way I think. I think like, what things can I do to de-commodify aspects of my life to where I am, I'm relying less on capitalism and, and more on, you know, social networks. And I don't mean like online social networks. I mean, physical people uh, who uh, feel a sense of obligation uh, to one another. Now, the thing with libraries and, and parks is that they, uh, you know, they are within the sort of government system and there are some kind of, you know, regulations that there's property laws, stuff like that. But I think that, you know, uh, building communities from which commodification is gone, there's no money changing hands. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, market relationships, like what the early Christians did, you know, they basically had right. these communities where uh, the institution of patronage, which was a big institution back then, you know, it, it, you could say it was like an ideology, very much like uh, capitalism is the ideology. Now, they basically banished patronage, and as well as sort of like market thinking uh, from their communities. So I, I think, you know, a, a lot of people, uh, you know, think in terms of let's let's make these big changes to state structures. But if you think about how capitalism is developing, it's not necessarily changing the big political structures per se. It's slowly commodifying more and more of life. And uh, you know, that's right. how capitalism's so, taken over. So, so it, it's sort of an implication of what we're saying that you know the current kind of activist left could potentially like create genuine kind of world historical anti-capitalist waves in a way that it currently isn't but it would have to it would have to update its attitudes towards i guess like something like faith right like i don't think either of us like is that fair to say i mean i don't like i'm not even yeah i mean i proper for me i think um Look, I think if you don't um, if you don't have a, a belief in in some sort of you know uh, capital G God or, or divinity uh, where uh, you are kind of uh, you know saying that these obligations, these sort of you know uh, uh, moral uh, imperatives. 
this this sort of worldview that that I am not the most important thing, but there there is something bigger than me, and it's not something that I choose necessarily. It just it just is uh, more important than me, whether I like it or not. I mean, that's in a sense you could say that that's uh, one way to describe faith. Um, I think that once you know you you acknowledge that, which I think ultimately, I mean. Even secular people very often acknowledge that in their lives. You know, they they live very often as though there is a God. You know, they uh, they they have these uh, overarching moral worldviews that they don't necessarily choose, but that in a sense they're um, uh, that that they feel impelled to follow, compelled to follow. So. I think that just, uh, you know, for me, I think that as long as the, the, the secular ideology, uh, which is basically that there is no uh, higher ultimate uh, purpose, teleology, uh, morality, as long as that is dominant, um, I think it's going to be very difficult to uh, sort of push against the things that I think follow from that. And I think one of those things is, you know, capitalism, you know, there, there's a, a book, I'm not sure if you're right. familiar with uh, Charles Taylor's uh, a secular age. Uh, not, a, not that one, but yeah, I know his shtick a little bit. Yeah. So, so um, I, I think he, he makes a, a pretty good case that of how uh, secularism uh, developed and how the sort of uh, the creation of the idea of uh, the individual uh, as a sort of uh, as the locus, the the beginning point. And I think this is a big thing with John Locke as well, uh, and a lot of uh, you know the the sort of uh, state of nature guys. So that John Locke was basically working within a Enlightenment. Um, disenchanted sort of it wasn't quite yet it wasn't secular like uh, today but it was uh it, it was a disenchanted world and he had this sort of idea of the of the atomized individual and that's where society starts and and i would want to say that 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 no the, the reality is not that the atomized individual uh meets together with other atomized individual and they create a society but rather that the society creates the individual uh, I mean, you are who you are really only because of the people around you. I mean, you are um, uh, not just a product of your society, but even the categories in which you think are, are social. And, and I want to say that it's not just that the individual is a, is a product of, of, uh, of society, but that, um, you know, the, the Judeo-Christian notion of the, of the image of God, uh, the imagio Deo, is, I think, very important because there, there's an uh, automatic assumption in, uh, in at least Western thinking that, that there is something uniquely important about humans and human uh, uh, flourishing and not just human flourishing, but like human dignity. And that uh, this thing is is central, and uh, and I want to say that that when you get away from the atomized thinking, 
of uh, in of human individuals being uh, the sort of atomic independent creatures that start out with no obligations, no social relationships, and rather go that that human beings are are uh, intrinsically embedded, uh, embedded within a Sort of uh, uh, political institutions, but also an ideology, uh, which is the sort of uh, liberal ideology of an of an atomized individual, of uh, you know, of a contractual nature of relationships and things like that. And I think what faith does is basically say, well, no, there, there's not the atomized individual. There's something above that that, that uh, means that, there, that we have primordial obligations that are prior to our own contracts, our own um, right. sort of, uh, you know, yeah, you know individual what whims or desires. Yeah, totally. And you know what else, though? Like, even, it's kind of mundane, but I think it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. If you're an anti-capitalist today, mm -hmm. I mean, just think about that for a second. Capitalism has never been so dominant as a kind of global economic super force that, you know, if, if today you're if you're literally going to say to people you're opposed to capitalism and you're going to try to get together with other people to overthrow capitalism. Like, how could you not, on some level, have, like, be operating on faith? <laughs> like, you're sure as hell not operating on, like, a rational calculation of competing forces. Like, if you genuinely believe, if you're genuinely an anti-capitalist today, you, you kind of, almost by definition, have to be operating on some amount of faith, I think. And so, like, I don't think it's that much of a stretch to kind of take this next step that I'm kind of you know, listen, thinking about as I listen to you, which is that like, if you really want to overthrow capitalism, you need to be a little bit more honest about how you're able to justify your claims about like the, the deserving equality of, of all people, because I think you're right. Like the only way you can really found that or justify that is on some philosophy of, of, of radical, absolute dignity. Uh, an equal dignity of all people and and there's no way to there's no way to base that on um like science or empirical evidence i mean maybe there is actually now that i think about it but that i don't know i i i'm i'm sympathetic to kind of what i think you were saying before that um ultimately if your if your attitude towards um you know our you know, the, the, the human condition, call it whatever you want, our, our kind of placement in the world. If your attitude towards it is secular um, or secularism, then you're, you can basically forget about the idea of fundamentally transforming capitalism. I just think that what's the irony is that if you're an activist today, like a radical activist today, you, you are essentially a religious actor. Like you, but since you, since you deny God and you deny faith, you end up 
it ends up actually like modern leftism ends up being a religion of itself. Like you kind of end up worshiping yourself and your ideals right. and your, your community in this kind of like perverted disingenuous way. And I think that's ultimately why modern radical activism like doesn't work at all. Uh, even though it's essentially, it's essentially as faith-based as any religion, but it's kind of doomed to fail because it's, it's a bad faith religion or something like that. I, I would say that, uh, I mean, I, I use the term secularism and, and really what I mean by that is sort of like the modern, uh, you know, materialist uh, kind of, you know, liberal uh, worldview. Uh, but I would say that secularism in terms of a pure secularism, a pure, uh, you know, uh, desacralized uh, society, I would say it's completely impossible because they're, mm. you're going to sacralize something. I mean, in, mm. so in modern capitalist societies, even though in theory they're, they're secular in the sense that like there's no – in capitalism there is no value other than market value, right? Uh, there is no good other than what is profitable. So it doesn't matter. So for example, if I'm a nurse and I'm helping sick people and I'm producing a certain amount of profits, uh, that's, you know, I suppose that's good because I'm producing a certain amount of profits. But let's say I'm selling, you know, uh, opiates as medicine and I'm getting people opiate addict addicted to opiates and I'm making a lot of profits. Hey, by objective measures in capitalism, I'm actually doing doing better. This is by definition better because it's measured by profit. So in capitalism, mm -hmm. what's sacralized is profits, uh, property. I mean, you can see this in the way people talk about uh, markets, property, and uh, and profits. People talk about private property as though it were a primordial sacred right. You know, so like if, if me and you are on an island together, like uh, like that, there would already be property lines established there rather than we'd be together and trying to figure out how to survive on this island. That's how it's seen. And the same thing with markets. The markets are right by definition. So very often they'll, you know, we'll take we'll take a market outcome. Right. So so like let's take, um, uh, you know pornography for example now people can argue you know does pornography have negative effects on, on men or on marriages whatever but really it doesn't matter because there's a market interaction going wrong going on and by definition if it competes in the market and wins it's good the same thing with profits that profits are automatically good and the, the faith is that these markets will always lead to the best outcome and that these markets are primordial, that they are uh, beyond sort of human co construct. You know, it's kind of like the divine right of kings that they, they're used to have, you know, uh, um, in, in the old monarchies in Europe, that, that, that being a king was not a sort of societal arrangement, that this was a primordial sacred right. And the same thing with markets. I mean, uh, as uh, David Graeber and other anthropologists have found out that, that markets are, are really a, a modern invention. You know, people before states, before money, they didn't barter. There weren't markets. Uh, and 
one obvious way to see that is the uh, um, uh, the the problem of double needs. You know that uh, in in tribal societies, you if I had chickens and you had cows, it's not like I would go up to you if I need milk and give you chickens. I mean, give you eggs in exchange for for milk. Because what if you didn't want, uh, you know, want the eggs? What would usually happen is would there be some sort of like would be lending to each other, giving, gift exchange, or just sharing. But in in the way the modern capitalist ideology works, these things are sacred. In other words, the the fact that um, that markets and property are not sort of primordial truths almost doesn't matter because these are sacred categories. So all the discourse starts with that. And the same goes with, um, uh, with sort of secularism. The idea that there is no ultimate value above what a person can come up with himself or what he can agree on with other people is just sort of axiomatic uh, in, in the way people think. But there's no... Um, I mean, people don't argue for this position. It's just assumed. So I think that, um, ah, man, I forget where I was going with this. Um, but uh, uh, this, the idea of a sort of sacred, uh, not sacred, but a, a secular, um, um, completely desacralized society is completely impossible. And what, what very often the, the left will do and, and I, I don't like talking in terms of the left as a broad brush, but, but some people in the left, what many people do, yeah. is they accept right. the kind of um, the sort of liberal modern axioms, which brought rise to capitalism. And then they try and sort of oppose capitalism within that framework. And it's, I, I just think you're going to end up, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult to do that. You're going to end up sacralizing something else. And unless you're aware of that, that, that this is how things work, uh, you're not going to really, uh, <laughs> you're going to end up um, uh, coming, getting problems that you didn't anticipate. I mean, this happened in you know, the Soviet Union yeah. as well. I mean, I, I don't know that much about the history of the Soviet Union, but some things I've read is about how the, the, the Soviet government uh, would mimic uh, in many ways the old czarist uh, regimes, and they kind of just made a, a Soviet version of that, uh, of the czarist right. regimes they I mean, replaced. I think I think you're you're totally right. I mean, have you? Uh, by the way, we're on the better part of two hours, so I'm sure you're probably starting to run out of steam as I am. So we can kind of move towards wrapping it up. But one thing I, I just wanted to say on that point, and this could be the last one actually, if you want, unless there are any final thoughts you want to add, by all means, uh, take your time. But um, you know, you were saying that you you think like it, it's just um, you're going to end up sacralizing something. Uh, and that's that drives well with something I said, I think, earlier in the conversation, which is that because activists, you know, especially kind of radical anti-capitalist activists, because they're they're not willing to kind of take the leap and explicitly kind of acknowledge the the essentially kind of faith based uh, prospect that that revolutionary social change essentially involves that when what ends up happening is that they 
they end up kind of worshiping their own ideals in some sense. Um, yeah. And you see this in very strange ways. Like, so what I was going to ask you was, you, I think we said, in a, we, we talked previously a little bit and you said, I think um, that you kind of, you've always kind of been sympathetic to radical left ideas, but you're not like, you're not an activist or anything, or you've not been for like, you've never really been uh, that involved in like activist work. Is that fair to say? Or yeah, what? not, not, no, not really. Not, I mean, yeah, yeah no, right. I wouldn't call myself. So, an activist. so right. Be, I mean, you'd probably be very interested to see what kind of goes on <laughs> like under the hood of radical left, like activist culture, because uh, I could see ample evidence for the kinds of things we're talking about. Like for what I see in my experience is, I mean, one example is sort of, it's not a concrete example, but it's like a stylized um, situation I'll give you, is something that I used to always realize is there's this kind of deep resistance to uh, being like empirically serious about whether or not the work you're doing is succeeding or failing, whether it's working or not, you know? And so it's like, um, what, if, you, if you like rock up to like an, uh, an anti-capitalist like activist meeting, and you try to kind of do work with people and you're on some campaigns or projects or whatever. And, you know, after a couple of weeks, you're kind of like, you go to a meeting and you're like, Hey guys, listen, I've been, I've been thinking about what we're doing. I've been looking at, you know, the causes and effects and how, you know, how our work seems to be proceeding. And it just seems to me that what we're doing is not going to overthrow capitalism. Like it's just not, it's not really working out. Um, and we need to really kind of like go back to the drawing board and uh, really think more and seriously about like what can human beings actually do to fundamentally challenge dominant economic system. You know, um, you get this kind of like everyone's like, yeah, OK, we agree, but. Um, like we don't really know, so we just have to have faith that what we're doing is going to work if we just keep doing it. You know, they they won't use the word they won't use the word faith, of course, but that is essentially like without a religious vocabulary, they'll basically look you in the eye and uh, basically say, um, yeah, your critiques might be right. Maybe this isn't working, um, but just keep doing it. And, and let's just hope that, you know, we'll get more people involved. Things are going to change and, and it's going to work eventually. And so I see this very clearly in activist culture. It's It's essentially... It, it really is like religion coming through the back door, but it's having, it's not having faith in a higher ideal. It's not having faith in um, like a higher value or an afterlife or anything like that. It's, in a um, it's it right. It, it's like, it's like a faith in, in yourself and your group in, in some sense. And like, what is more sad than that, but not just sad, ultimately like it's, it's doomed to failure. If what you have faith in, is like your own beliefs because that's the exact opposite of how you update your models and and figure out how to like change things. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like I yeah. don't I, I don't mean to be I don't want, I don't mean to be like ragging on like the quote unquote left, which is like such an annoying thing always. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm just saying I'm I'm trying to kind of give um, like a concrete illustration of how um, religion will kind of always creep in the back door. And if you, if you're not explicit about it and do it in like a noble elevated, um, like beautiful and, and, and effective, honest way, 
then you're it's going to just be dishonest and it's going to be uh it's going it's going to be like absolutely opposed to your own kind of success in doing the things that you want to do on the world right uh, I, I would say you know i think so so if we go back to sort of early christianity now i mean christianity eventually became sort of the religion of the Roman Empire. And, you know, that was certainly a mixed bag. I think uh, when that happened, it was terrible for Christianity, but kind of good for the, the social situation of many people in the empire. So uh, after Christianity became really big uh, in late antiquity, uh, things like, you know, hospitals showed up for the poor, uh, you know, social programs started, you know, for the poor, uh, universal education, things. Now, uh, as slavery, for example, started to decline rapidly uh, for uh, various reasons. I'm not going to say that, you know, after Christianity took over their own empire, everything was, was great, but there were serious uh, effects that that, happened, that that had on the society um, that uh, ultimately led to, I think, uh, many good things in, in the modern era, the idea of like the universal dignity of man, the idea that that the poorest person uh, has just as much dignity as anyone else and that society is responsible for that person. That comes from Christianity. Now, Christianity never intended to take over the Roman Empire. Uh, what Christianity was doing was originally just setting up, setting out to sort of build its own communities among using its own ideals. And basically their... Uh, idea of their relationship to the, the Roman Empire was just leave us alone. You know, uh, that's basically it. They just didn't want to be, you know, killed or thrown in prison. And, uh, you know, there are time periods where there was more persecution and time periods where there are less. But they had these, uh, this eschatological worldview. They had the, the figure of the Christ. They had these, these teachings that come out uh, of, um, you know, Jesus' teachings, um, uh, things that had to do with, for example, the Jewish notion of the Jubilee, um, uh, the uh, idea of the sort of, you know, social reversal of the rich and the poor that came out of Judaism and the Christians took on. A and ultimately, their goal was just to build these communities uh, that were um, uh, proponents of what they saw was the kingdom of God. And uh, that's what they were building. And ultimately, I mean, if you look at the effect that it had, I mean, it had a huge effect, uh, even on the Roman state itself. Uh, so I, I think, I mean, uh, I think what, what can make a big difference is, is people... Uh, like, like, let's take, uh, also take the example of capitalism. Capitalism didn't overtake feudalism uh, through like some, you know, revolution or anything like that. You, you had the different revolutions here and there, but ultimately it was a change in ideology, a, a, uh, a uh, change in the, the dynamics, and that ultimately led to the creation of capitalism. So I, I think going back to... Um, a fundamental worldview standpoint and, and really thinking uh, about what the, the fundamental 
a basis of your worldview is and what you're trying to get out of it and what ultimately is your, 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 your foundation for how you view the world, uh, how you view society, how you view your place in it. I think that's something that, uh, you know, people who are, have a problem with capitalism need to do. Because if you don't do that, if you don't check your foundations, your, your foundational worldview, and uh, really think, you know, uh, deeply about how you think that morality works, value works, your, your metaphysical worldview, then you're going to end up uh, approaching it with unexamined assumptions um, that will, uh, you know, that won't that won't be helpful for you. And you you know you mentioned that a lot of these these activist circles they they have this sort of faith that sort of crept in. And I think the problem with it is not so much the faith itself; is that it's it's not examined and it doesn't have any foundation. They haven't uh, they haven't thought about why they think what they think, uh, why they have this faith. And, and what this is ultimately based on. It's just there. I mean, people have a, uh, I think a lot of, you know, uh, radicals, they, they ult- it ultimately comes from a, um, a deep uh, ethical sense of an obligation. And then they just go after that. But they, they don't, not, not everyone examines where that deep sense of ethical obligation comes from what its foundation is, and what it's, uh, and uh, and what worldview one has to adopt to make sense of that, and I think that that's that's fundamental. If you don't do that, uh, you're going to end up just sort of you know running after the wind, you could say, in my opinion. And I think that's uh, what a lot of people are doing is they're just they're just running after the wind because they haven't uh, thought hard enough about. Uh, what they believe, why, and what their uh, worldview is, and how that shapes their own obligations. Uh, so, Dude, I mean, I'm kind of well, repeating myself. I but... think. No, 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 man. That was that was awesome. I think that's as good a closing word as I could come up with. So, I think I'll let you have okay. that as the, as the last word, uh, unless there's anything else you wanted to uh, to sneak into the conversation before we. Before we wrap it up, no, I mean that, that's fine. It, it went uh, it went way off uh, the original uh, subject, which was you know my book and uh, early Christianity and New Testament. But it was fun. I, I love. I, I really enjoyed talking oh, yeah. about uh, these things, and um, uh, and and I think I think these conversations are important, and that uh, and that uh, these are things that more people should be should be thinking about. I think. Look, I think Christians, people who uh, who are believers uh, like I am uh, should be thinking a lot more about what these texts that they venerate are actually saying and uh, should not just sort of, you know, uh, skip over to the personal salvation texts and think, well, I'm good. Uh, they should really take what it's saying seriously and take the ethical implications seriously. And I think they should study uh, early Christian history and see uh, what, they were actually doing. I mean, because these were people who were taking it seriously and who who got it outside of all the modern ideological filters that we have. That where you know modern people are reading these ancient texts with these modern filters, 
it would be very helpful to study what the original people were doing with these, these texts and with these ideas and with these traditions. Uh, because I think a lot of people uh, who are believers are not taking it as nearly seriously enough. I mean, you, you read through the Gospel of Luke and you just think like, you know, did Jesus actually mean what he said? And if the answer is yes, well, that has radical implications on how one, you know, views, uh, you know, property, uh, wealth, uh, economic relationships, social relationships, uh, the state, um, uh, violence, all those things. And I think for people who, who aren't believers, but who, who have a, um, they, they want a better world than what capitalism is delivering, I think that it would, that they should uh, think deeply about, about what's driving them, their worldview. And uh, I, I honestly think that Christianity uh, and, and the Christian tradition and that, that worldview is, um, lends itself to not only uh, a, 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 a uh, uh, not only do I think it's the true worldview, I think it's an accurate worldview that describes reality uh, uh, in a way that uh, makes sense of it. But I think also it's, a, I would say it's the best way you could really ground and make sense of uh, the, the moral obligations that we have and uh, the, the inherent human value and dignity that we have that is ultimately based in um, a, a, a ultimate a, a divine source. And that, that's what I believe. Uh, at least. But anyway, I, I really appreciate you having me on and talking with me. Well, yeah, no, I'm really happy to talk to you, man. This was really interesting. And I'll be thinking about this stuff for a while. I mean, you just gave a very good little um, bit on more of the, the, the Christian half of this. And I, well, I can't speak so much to the, to the Christian half, but I can speak a little bit more to the communist half, I guess, with some experience. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I would just second what you said, uh, but from the other half of it, which is to say that I think, I, and I, I guess I've said this in a few ways already, but anyone today who is half serious about being an anti-capitalist uh, has to really grapple with, you know, the, the, the overall gist of, of your book and, and kind of what you just said. Like, I mean, I don't even, I'm still kind of trying to figure out how I think about religion and I think about my Catholic upbringing and where I'm at with that. Like, I genuinely don't know, uh, but I am trying to figure it out. And I think that is, you know, all, that's the least one can do. And I think if you're, if you're really interested in overthrowing capitalism, I think, yeah, you kind of uh, have to at least get serious about uh, trying to figure out where you come down on, on these larger questions. So I think this has been really uh, rich conversation that hopefully some and people look, will look, get it, something out of. If it. you if you uh, examine these things and you come out an atheist, fine. But but at least if you're gonna if you're saying I, I think the world should be some way, I'm gonna strive for a uh, a a sort of a, a a better world based on some moral foundation. You at least have to examine it, and I'm not saying that you're necessarily right. going to come out of it a Christian, but uh, I, I think that 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 foundation at least has to be examined. And you know, for me, that that pushes me to Christianity. Uh, but it's something that sure. at least someone should be should be uh, aware of and thoughtful of. 
So real quick, do you, I'm curious, do you have like a tight knit group of fellow family who are like radical communists? I, I am. No, I, I'm part of a, a community, a Christian community that they have. Uh, I mean, look, it's not communist in the same way the, the early Christians were or anything like that. But there is a strong emphasis on, uh, you know, mutual aid and things like that. And you know what? It's, it's not as uncommon as you'd think um, that uh, Christian communities, you know, not all of them, but there, there are many Christian communities that, that do a, have a very strong emphasis on mutual aid, on uh, caring for the, uh, um, uh, you know, for the less fortunate, and that has the strong emphasis on a mutual obligation that people have towards one another. Uh, I mean, so, so these, these exist out there. Uh, for me, my problem is, is the people who kind of view Christianity as just an individual thing, and it's, it's about individual salvation, and that's it. And that's also very popular in Christianity, and uh, I, uh, I, I want nothing to do with that sort of cheap um, uh, individual, you know, uh, sort of uh, non-communal form of uh, Christianity that just is is basically a, a reflection. It's basically just a a Christianized form of the modern, you know, liberal capitalism, where uh, it's it's almost as if like you know going to religious service is like is like uh, uh, buying another commodity. You know, you're going there, you're getting something out of it. And, you know, it, it's a it's a consumption, uh, whereas for me, I think it should be about a community based on uh, absolute obligations towards one another and uh, towards God. And uh, uh, for me, that's that's the core of Christianity. Uh, it's not, you know, about some feeling you get uh, when you go to a service. Right. Well, dude, that's super interesting because like, sorry, I know we're trying to kind of wrap it up, but I keep having mm. last thoughts. Uh, <laughs> something I was just thinking about is like, I mean, I, so you must feel having written a book about how Christians are communists, like you must feel some degree of uh, alienation given that I think it's fair to say probably the, the most common viewpoint of most Christians is like, yes, charity is good. Generosity is good. Um, but like, surely you're, you must be a minority, uh, in whatever community you're in, you know, uh, who would say that like, right. Like yeah. communism, like, commu look, like, hey, hey guys, as Christians, we should actually be communists. Like people must right. kind of look askance at you. Right. 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 But you know, the, 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 the word communism again is a very, like in, in my book, I basically have an entire chapter trying to. Uh, to, to take away the sting that that word has because people have very strong uh -huh. reactions to it. Um, and so I, I don't think, uh, you know, I think the seeds are there. Uh, look, the seeds are there in the text themselves and, and the seeds are there in the, uh, um, in the, uh, the, the uh, you know, the theology itself. I mean, but it's just to sort of draw it out. And, and I look, I, I wouldn't go around and tell people you got to be a communist or anything like that. I would just say, take the New Testament seriously and take, you know, uh, what, what the, the theology is saying, what the, um, the teachings of Jesus is saying, take it seriously. 
and and really take it seriously. Don't just try and think about how this is like a you know can make me uh, feel good or how can I get to heaven or anything like that, but really take seriously what demands are being put. And I think, uh, you know, and, and one caveat I'd have to say is American Christianity, it's American evangelical Christianity is kind of its own world. It's, uh, you yeah. know, I, I, we live in Europe and um, the sort of, you know, Christian culture that's in the rest of the world outside of American uh, evangelicalism is, is worlds apart. So people in the United States who are familiar with American evangelical culture, which to be honest, American evangelicalism uh, is, is not, it's, uh, it's not even Christianity anymore. It's like some, mm -hmm. uh, you know, neo, uh, uh, <laughs> it's much more akin to sort of the, uh, the national pagan, like emperor cults of Rome uh, where, you know, the the uh the emperor uh the the figure of rome is important militarism is important i mean it's so completely detached from uh the theology of the new testament theology that it's a lot of you know american evangelicalism it's very it'd be very difficult to even call it christianity anymore i mean when you see people you know cheerleading for war and, you know, cheerleading for things that would, you know, devastate poor people uh, and, and that brutalize poor people. I mean, at, at what point right. do you and, continue and like calling that Christianity? Charismatic and charismatic pastors that themselves become millionaires off of their exactly. I mean, followers. At that it's point, horrifying. are we even taught, I mean, is this even the, the, the same, uh, you know, religion as what's described in the New Testament? I, I can't, I mean... I I don't see it. It's a it's right. the the fu the fundament the foundation the ideological foundation on which those movements are based are most definitely not uh, the the foundations the ideological foundations on which the first Christians were um, fun functioning under. Uh, they those movements very much basically just take the uh, you know the liberal market ideology. Uh, of modern uh, secular capitalism and just sort of drape Jesus over it and, uh, and call that Christianity. But uh, it's, right. it's not. So, you know, but, but then again, this is very much an American problem and uh, right. in other places around the world, you just, it's just not, it's not, uh, you don't, Christianity doesn't have that same crutch, you know, uh, the so-called the the political movement under Ronald Reagan really did a good job in co-opting uh, the evangelicalism in America. So, yeah, I mean that's basically, yeah, like I said, it's it's barely Christianity anymore. Hey, hang on, sorry, someone on someone on the thread is asking if they can ask a question real quick. So I'm gonna say, yeah, sure. Unless you're in a yeah, rush, sure. roll. See if uh, Zach is still there. It's interesting anyway, Roman, because like you and I are kind of symmetrical, but opposite in the sense that like we're both interested in Christianity and communism, but like you're a little bit more Christian than you are communist. And I'm yeah, a little definitely. bit more I mean, communist I, I, I don't, from experience I don't like, than I am that Christian. political uh, of a person. I mean, I, I care. Right. Uh, I mean, I it's just interesting how we're kind of. Yeah. Sorry. Meeting in the middle. Go ahead. 
it's interesting how we kind of are like mirror reflections of each other a little bit and our emphases on on these two different concepts like i have um like i've i've always gravitated towards like communist kind of like living arrangements too like i lived in i've lived in a few shared houses and uh -huh. for at least some time when i was in philadelphia i lived in like a massive shared house of like 25 people and it was on like radical activist premises and we basically lived like communists like pretty mm. radically to the point yeah. to the point that like half yeah. half of the people weren't paying rent like i think <laughs> half of the people literally and the, those of us who had jobs were were like paying for the people who didn't have rent and and it got way out of hand and it was totally a disaster that went up in flames but mm. it was you know like a it was a radical communist community in some sense and um but of course it was missing it was missing the like spiritual uh, ethical kind of like undergirding that would be necessary probably for it to for it to you know become a world historical uh you know effect you know what i mean uh, yeah and and on like on the other hand as a christian you probably have like a stronger more stable sustainable community around you but i wonder if like you thirst for a little bit more radical communism than your your current christian community I mean, is I able mean, to look, give you look the the um you know, every anytime you you sort of have a um, an ideology that's that's pushing against the the dominant ideology, uh, there it's going to be very difficult to sustain that. And you know, for me, I mean, I I'm not so much a uh, you know trying to sort of uh, you know push this you know, on people myself, I just, I, I, I sort of say, think about it, take it seriously and see where it goes. And then, you know, I personally just think like, well, if I can do my best to at least apply these principles where I can and other people do the same, you know, is it might not overthrow capitalism, but hopefully it might, you know, decommodify a little bit of you know my life and other people's life to where the effects of capitalism aren't as brutal and you know what if enough people do it and enough people can do it to a certain extent extent you know who knows you know uh hell yeah so yeah hell yeah i i i i, uh, I don't know the answer uh of you know how you can <laughs> really overcome right. capitalism uh but i i do think that uh, doing as much as you can to decommodify your life, decommodify life of other people, and and trying to build a community that is um, decommodified, that is outside of market arrangements, um, that is outside of uh, sort of you know yeah outside of market arrangements where uh, market right. logic does not hold, and and putting more into those, more effort into those and, and having those, uh, relying on those more than you're relying on, on capitalism. Now, I, I understand that, you know, there's only so much that people can do in that. But I, but I will say this, people in poor communities, uh, like very poor communities, people in, uh, you know, uh, I was recently in Nicaragua and, you know, the, the rural people who live in the villages in Nicaragua, uh, the fact that they have to rely on their neighbors, you know, rely on whoever they go to church with for their material needs, that's something they understand, you know, it's second nature. That people 
in core, poor communities, they have very often stronger networks because capitalism has not been kind to them. And they, you know, capitalism at any moment is ready to, to kick them to the ground. So they need these social networks. They need these uh, communities. They need uh, mutual aid. Uh, and they, they, they need these things. And very often the way capitalism works is by destroying those communities to make people more dependent on capitalism. And, and <laughs> we're supposed to wrap it up, but I like... Let me give you one quick example. Um, uh, a lot of, a lot of times, rural communities will have these sort of networks of mutual aid. They'll be uh, more or less separated from uh, capitalism. Uh, the the amount of, you know, stuff that they use uh, that they're that are bought and sold uh, is is not that high. A lot of what they do, they produce themselves and they they share. And then, you know, capitalism comes, the, sometimes the land is taken, uh, oil is found in the area, uh, you know, the, the land is destroyed, uh, these networks are, are broken up, some people move away, uh, go get jobs in the city. And these sort of more organic, um, small C communist communities are broken up. So, uh, you know, um, this is not like a, in my opinion, resistance to capitalism uh, is a big part of that is going to be building communities that provide an alternative to capitalism. And I, I think, you know, Christianity, uh, the communities that, uh, you know, were built in early Christianity were a great model for that. Um, so, right. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, the person and asked a question. Uh, I, I didn't. Yeah. I'll, I'll say that now. I was just going to say quickly, uh, Roman, don't feel bad about having more things to talk about. We, we don't need, we didn't need to wrap it up. I was just trying to be, you know, respectful of your uh, uh, limits probably and not overtax you. But if you have more to share, it's totally all good. I'm not in any rush, uh, but we can, um, we can continue trying to wrap it up and we'll just take Zach's question, which you wrote now. Uh, I'll let you, I'll let you answer first. I have an answer too. If you want me to go uh -huh. first, Zach, wants to wants to ask us um is it possible to use concepts such as christian faith in purely instrumental terms or would the usage of faith as a tool undermine the authenticity of faith and therefore numb any chance of change so i think he's basically saying like can if you if you're interested in kind of communism or radical activism or whatever can you kind of use these ideas of christian faith to facilitate you know the the creation of a of a communist community or something like that without necessarily believing in it. That's a very good um, question. Just to kind of get, to get the effects out of it. And so I have my own answer for sure, but uh, you can go first if you, if you have one off the top of your head. Here, here's, here's my answer. Uh, I, 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 I completely, so I, I, there's a lot of, uh, you know, people who, who are attached to the Christian religion who are also, you know, anti-capitalists and they sort of, will take that route, taking ideas of Christianity as to use it. I don't take that route. Uh, you know, for me, I, I take Christianity dead seriously. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I take the, you know, I, I believe uh, strongly that, you know, Jesus Christ is God's Messiah, that he was uh, risen from the dead. 
Now that's what I believe. And that's, that's the, the foundation, right? So for me, the most important thing is being faithful to, to what I believe has been revealed through Christ and Christianity. And, uh, and ultimately that, um, uh, that there is a higher power that God exists and that his, uh, that, um, that the world is ultimately teleological. It has a, a purpose. It has a value and that that was revealed in Jesus. Now, where that leads me and where that leads me in relation to the uh, modern uh, systems of uh, capitalism, of the state and so on, that will, that will affect how I view those things uh, on how I view sort of like the, the market capitalist ideology, the state uh, military ideologies, things like that. But, but for me, uh, I look, my uh, goal is to be faithful to what I believe uh, to, to Christianity, to what I believe has been revealed through Jesus. That's my goal, right? But I, I don't, so I, for me, like people who use Christianity as sort of like a tool, like that's kind of like what uh, people like, you know, Slavo Žižek is doing. He's taking the Christian tradition and uh, he's sort of running it through a kind of, you know, Lacanian um, uh, sort of, you know, filter and, and using that as like a, a trying to create a, a theology because he realizes that ultimately, you know, what we've just been talking about that, that, you know, the radical left needs some sort of theological basis. And so he's sort of using Christianity to, to, to use that as a foundation. Other people do that. For me, that's not, uh, that's not where I'm coming from. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, for me, I'll, I'll use other things to remain faithful uh, to uh, what I believe is foundational, which is the, the Christian message, uh, the messiahship of Christ, uh, the reality of God, and so on. So that's where I'm coming from. Um, look, so that's if, a super interesting answer uh, from from you, Roman, as a as as a believer, as a Christian. Um, and interestingly, I mean, I'm going to answer the question from a different perspective, obviously, uh, more from a social scientific perspective, actually. But it's interesting to note how uh, our answers are actually pretty convergent. So uh, my answer to that question is, yeah. Uh, a reminder for anyone who's just tuning in, the question was, you know, can you use Christian faith to achieve, you know, the positive effects of of having a strong belief or faith, but just to get the beneficial effects out of it, not necessarily really deeply personally believing. I think I agree with Roman that that just doesn't work. Um, but I speak not as a believer, but as as someone who's looked a lot at and thought a lot about um, how faith works and the effects that it has just on a kind of almost like on a biochemical level. Like what I think about is there are the, the, the really beneficial effects that come to you and your community and, and, and so on through, through being like a, a pious true believer, they only really get um, ignited if you're a really true believer. In other words, the, in the nature of the thing, you can't really instrumentally play it because if you're just trying to use it, 
then it's not actually going to unlock the effects that true true faith actually has. And so, you know, one way to think about it is like, and this is not in any way to reduce, you know, the depth of, or the, or this more spiritual kind of understanding that someone like Roman, you Roman would um, like described in your own terms, not right. to, not to undercut that whatsoever. But an interesting example that I think about is like, if you think about the placebo effect, the famous placebo effect, like yeah. if you give, if I, if I have a headache and you give me a sugar pill, um, if I believe that it's like a painkiller, it's going to have a demonstrable, measurable, replicable effect on actually decreasing pain. And there are a lot, you find this sort of uh, tendency in all different kinds of ways. Like a human, a human being's belief actually does affect like very material physical processes, such as like how your body works. Um, lots of evidence for that. Um, but if I, you know, if you get, if I have a headache and you give me a sugar pill, you know, I can't instrumentally use faith or belief. I can't say if I, if I already know all of these things, I can't like just say, okay, I'm going to try to believe that I'm going to try to believe that the sugar pill is actually a painkiller. And by using this faith instrumentally, it's going to, it's going to affect my body um, in the way that I want it to. You have to actually kind of believe in it. Now, can I, can I just so, bring so, up another example that, that parallels that real quick? Yeah, but actually, could I could I just finish Go ahead, what I finish one thing, thing and then, yeah. then you could say because it, it's kind of a deep thought and I don't want to lose it or get sidetracked. So, so that's my first level of the of, of an answer to that question. That basically, no, you have you have to be all in. You have to actually believe to get the community building and psychological and spiritual benefits of that you know are associated with you know like uh, belief. I think, um, and if you try to be instrumental, it's it's just not going to work. But and this is what I, this is something I'm really interested in. Um, I do wonder about a second level of, of of an answer to that question, which is like when you realize, like when you come to the realization that I just said, then there's I, almost I, like I, a I third. Missed, I missed just what you said. Uh, what did you What did you just say? Oh, it just the audio was a little bit uh, choppy. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sure. No worries. I'll start over. All I, I I was really just kind of warming up to say what I was anyway, which is. That, if you're able to come to the conclusion that I just kind of described, uh-huh. then I feel like a kind of third meta level opens up where you kind of like, okay, well, if instrumental belief in faith is not going to work, mm-hmm. but a true faith will demonstrably lead to the positive outcomes that I desire and believe in, well, then that itself becomes a legitimate base for taking the plunge into genuine faith. Um, so in a, in a weird way, it's, there's an instrumental kind of like component. There's a realization that there are instrumental benefits to be had um, and you can't fake it. You can't do it just for the instrumental benefits. But when you realize that you can't fake it and do it for the instrumental benefits, then you can, decide based on that series of realizations that actually taking the plunge towards radical faith is a plunge that you're willing to take. I, I, I agree I with, I, well, okay. I, I agree that that could be a, a way to approach it, but one, because you, you talked about the placebo effect and I think that's a, that's a good analogy, but I think another analogy that works very well is falling in love, right? There's a lot of evidence that that being in a long term relationship, being married has health benefits, you know, more than, than being single. 
but in order to really fall in love uh, and to really sort of uh, dedicate yourself, say, I'm, I'm going to be with this person for the rest of my life. This person is going to be, uh, I'm going to tie myself to this person to where, you know, we're going to be, we're going to share a life together. Uh, that in order to do that, you really have to believe that this person is, is special and that you love this person enough to that you're willing to give up your own autonomy, your own freedom, and, and attach yourself to this person for life. You know, that has all kinds of, uh, of benefits. But if you're going to lay, lay down and, and write down what are the risks and benefits of falling in love, I mean, the risks and the downsides would be huge. And the benefits would be maybe, you know, these instrumental benefits. But, you know, you look at the data and, and it's clear that living in a, uh, you know, being married, having a long-term relationship is, is healthy. But it, you, in a sense, you can't fake it. If you're saying like, look, I'm in love with this person because I choose to be because it's good for me. It's, uh, it's healthy for me to be in love uh, with this person. You're not in love. It's not going to work if you're trying to use it instrumentally. And I mean, that's uh, unfortunately, you know, e even relationships get affected by capitalism because that, that thinking uh, is, is even pushed in relationships that I'm going to find someone who can benefit my life. Well, it's not going to work. In order to fall in love, you almost have to completely lose yourself and and throw yourself into this situation where you're giving up autonomy and freedom and, and handing it over to someone uh, who you're going to find yourself to. Right. And so I think that the, you know, um, faith in the Christian context is a lot like falling in love uh, in that sense. That Dude, I, I, I like that a lot. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I really deeply agree with what you just said. And, you know, also as a married man, I, I, I relate to what you're saying deeply. I mean, I think you really nailed something super important that a lot of people don't understand. Uh, so I couldn't have said that better myself. Um, and, you know, interestingly, maybe that is really, truly uh, a great place to end because this really brings us full circle. If you think about it, Roman, because, you know, is it not the case that marriage essentially the most basic elementary communist unit yeah you know what i mean and so it's like everything you said is so true and it really kind of it kind of shows you uh in a really concrete example how um the relationship between faith or religion and like a deep unbreakable communist bond or community um there, there's a very special kind of link between those two things that um a lot of people have a hard time kind of thinking through and I think you you kind of brought it around full circle so uh I love that yeah thanks that was awesome yeah um I think it was oh, and, Che Guevara and also Zach the, the true revolutionary is motivated by love I think that was Che Guevara hell yeah I think um yeah also you know Badiou Badiou also writes a lot about love as I'm sure you know yeah. um in in relation in relation to Paul and, and Christianity so yeah um Zach Palmer also says for the answers he says he you guess it's similar to what Badiou would call fidelity to the event. And I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. I'm not like a Badiou like scholar, but from what I know about Badiou, uh, 
his notion of fidelity to the event is exactly basically i think roman what you were talking about or very very similar and i'm i have, i'm very sympathetic to that um yeah yeah so uh, Roman, thank you so much for your time and uh, attention in this conversation. It was really, really rich, and I'm going to be digesting this for a while. So uh, it's been awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Good, good. I'm glad you did. Uh, and so let's stay in touch, and who knows, maybe we'll have cause to uh, continue the conversation some other time. Yeah, uh, definitely. Stay in touch, yeah? Okay. Awesome. Thanks Great. For, thanks so much, thanks Roman. Thanks for talking. Take it easy, man. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you. Later.